0: If you're a guest, my name's David, and I'm the pastor of the church. Man, I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad you're worshiping with us. We're you're always invited to anything that we got going on. We hope you enjoy everything. We're in the Christmas time of year. We love Christmas here. We celebrate. We got some stuff this afternoon at four and six. Our Christmas musical, "The Miracle of Christmas." We'd love to have you come be a part of that. Everything we have going on, all of you are welcome uh, to participate in those things. We're in a series and uh, titled The Day of the World Forever Changed. We celebrate uh, the birth of Christ this year on Sunday. It's a great time to celebrate, and when Christ came, the world changed. And last week, I began the series. I just shared uh, with, with all of you who were here that uh, the birth of Jesus was the turning point in human history. It was the pivotal event that said that something was coming, something needed to be done. And the thing about it is we need to understand what was needed and why was it needed. And that's what the series is all about. Last week in Luke, and we'll be in Luke throughout this whole series, uh, we saw the day the Lord spoke again. That after not speaking through his prophets for four hundred and thirty years, the angel came uh, to Zechariah and said, You're gonna have a son in the old age that y'all had, well beyond the time to give birth. Your wife's gonna have a son again naming John. He's the one that's gonna announce and be the forerunner of the coming of Jesus. Now we ask the question, sometimes God seems silent, but God is never really silent. He has never been silent. He's not ever silent in our lives. And Christmas is a part of this, understanding that God is not silent. Now, today, we come to a message entitled, The Day the Lord Revealed His Plan. And important to understand that God has had plan from the very beginning. You go back to Abraham when he said, The whole world will be blessed through you. You go back to when Eve sinned, and he told Eve, Your seed will crush the head of, of the, the serpent. I mean, you know, he's always had a plan. And his plan involves Jesus. And what we're going to deal with today is the virgin birth of Jesus. It's a, this is a doctrinal message. There's a lot of content. I'm going to be flying through this. You know, I only have like about an hour and 20 minutes to preach this message yeah. through three more times. <laughs> so I've got to, got to get going. Uh, but it, it, here's what I want you to see in the message today, that the virgin birth or conception of Jesus is an essential part of his story. When we talk about the virgin birth, we're actually talking about the conception, the miracle. But the virgin birth is for simplicity's sake, what we call. It's essential to the story of Jesus. and So I want to start today just by talking with you about the fact that God had a plan. Our God is an intentional God. God is not improvisational. Here's what I mean. God always knows what he's doing. He's in control. He is a sovereign God. He is a God who has absolute power and absolute knowledge. Everything he plans will occur. We may not understand his plan or the way his plan works, but he gets done what he wants to get done. If your belief in God is that he lacks the knowledge of the future or that he lacks some power, then God makes things up as he goes along. He improvises. And you can't have a lot of confidence in a God who has to improvise. The Christian faith, and I've shared with you this many times, but I like to repeat myself because evidently, I don't remember what I said, and you probably don't either sometimes, but the Christian faith has four fundamental pillars upon which we're really built. Two, we find in the Old Testament. Now, they spill over in the New, but they're in the Old. One, They're both from Genesis 1.1. The first is the idea of revelation. God reveals himself to us. In the beginning, God created. How do we know that? He revealed that to us. The ultimate, final, complete revelation of God is Jesus. He is the final revelation of God to man. The second pillar that we see in Genesis 1-1 is creation. God created everything out of nothing. There was nothing that existed but God. In the New Testament, we have two more pillars of our faith connected with Jesus. They're the incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas, and the resurrection, which we celebrate at Easter. They're basically two sides of the same coin. The incarnation, that is God is in the flesh, deals with the nature of Jesus, who he is, the God-man. The resurrection of Jesus, which is connected to the cross, where God in the flesh died in our place and on our behalf, deals with the work of Jesus, what he did. We have a whole lot more information in the New Testament about the resurrection than the incarnation, than the virgin birth. And yet all the information we have about the resurrection, we never have the actual process. We're not told how God raised Jesus from the dead. But when it comes to the incarnation, we do have an understanding, at least in part, of the process. We know how Jesus became God in the flesh. We find that in Matthew and more accurately, really, and intently in Luke. Now, I know it's popular at Christmas. We celebrate the birth of Jesus, but there's always those people who want to downplay the significance of Christmas. And, you know, Christians stole, you know, the story of Christmas from the pagans or it's based on mythology or this or that. One of my favorite is Jesus wasn't even born December 25th, so all of the New Testament and all the things about Jesus is wrong. Well, first place, we don't know when Jesus is born. It doesn't tell us in the New Testament. We don't, it doesn't matter when he was born because it doesn't tell us. Now, there is some evidence that he may not have been born December 25th. And I get that. I've done a lot of studying all this and that's fine if he's not. But there's also a lot of evidence that suggests he really was born December 25th. In fact, in a couple of weeks, I'll probably even share a little bit of that with you. But you know, the early church said he was born on December 25th on or around that date for a reason. So it doesn't matter, but I I go with December 25th. It makes the most sense. As far as Christianity, stealing the birth of Jesus from pagans, Well, that's just silly. Just because pagans had gods and goddesses created out of their own imagination that exhibited the worst traits they had, including lust and desire and covetousness, just because they did lustful desirous, even perverted things, it's no connotation, it's no similarity to what we have in the story of the birth of Christ. In fact, please understand this, that Christianity was persecuted because they wouldn't be pagans pagans killed Christians because they wouldn't be pagans. Christians aren't borrowing anything. And I get that. Now, whenever someone tells me about Christianity, you know, borrowed from paganism, Saturnalia, all that, I say two words. Evidence, please. Please give me some evidence. Show me some documentation that says there's a causal link between paganism and Christianity that certain Christians did certain things to bring that about because there's none. Not in the first few centuries. Now, you get out there in the fifth, sixth, seventh century when Christianity, you know, was the you know, faith of Rome and you have the Roman church doing stuff and they took pagan groups and they made them become Christians. And those pagan groups may have adopted practices. Yeah, they did it there, but that's not what they're talking about. The, the, the genesis, the origin of Christianity, there's nothing pagan about it. And when it comes to the virgin birth, that's even more so. In fact, we know that by you know, the, the first decade of the second century, Iron Ignatius writes about the virgin birth of Jesus. He accepted that. The early creeds all accepted the virgin birth of Christ. Now, sometimes even within Christianity, there are those who say, well, you know, it's not that important. You know, we don't want to cause a problem. We don't want people to not celebrate Christmas. So let's not make a big deal about the virgin birth. It's only mentioned twice. You know, it's just mentioned in Luke, it's just mentioned in in, in Matthew. Mark doesn't even mention it. Well, Mark doesn't mention anything about the early part of Christ's life. Mark begins with the ministry of Jesus. John didn't have to write about it because when John wrote, it's been 25 years since Matthew and Luke, he didn't need to, but John does write about the incarnation. He says in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, the Word was God. Verse 14 says, the Word became flesh. That's the incarnation becoming flesh. The book of Acts is about the life of the early church. The virgin birth wasn't an issue. Paul didn't write about the virgin birth because nobody had a problem with it. He only wrote about things that were problematic at the time. I'm amazed that so many people want to minimize, even within the Christian community, the virgin birth of Jesus. Now, I have people say, well, you know, God could have done it some other way. Well, I'm like, well, how do you know he could have? I mean, you're not exactly God. We live in a rebellion against God. How can we tell God, God, you could do things differently if you wanted"? I ask myself this question quite often at Christmas time. Why do people, why is it so important to minimize the virgin birth? And I can tell you why it's important to minimize the virgin birth. Because it deals with the miraculous. It deals with doing something supernatural that only God can do. So we come to Luke chapter 1. And we begin. Verse 26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, the sixth month of Elizabeth from the past story being pregnant, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Notice the emphasis is that the angel went to the virgin. They didn't even give her name yet, but this is important. I want you to get this. It's what Luke's writing about. He says, the angel came to a virgin. The virginity matters. She was engaged. Now, engagement was different back then. People get engaged now and break it off. People get engaged. I, there's some couple, some in the church. If this applies to you, don't, don't get mad at me for mentioning this. I just find this mildly humorous. We're going to get married. When? Oh, I don't know. In about three or four years. Okay. Well. Are you engaged? No, but we're sort of committed to being engaged at some point along the way, you know? That may have been some of you. I got engaged when Debbie told me we were engaged, so that's how I know when i was engaged. <laughs> Engagement, <laughs> yeah, there's some truth to that too. Engagement, more than you realize. Engagement back then was was really a legal process, you know, uh, and it began when they were young. I mean, girls would be about fourteen, fifteen; guys would be seventeen, eighteen. You, know, they were kind of a matchmaking deal, though. There was some, you know, you know, had to agreement, but but I can just imagine your 14-year-old daughter is, is going to be engaged and she'll be married by she's 15 or 16. And there's a lot of you fathers of 14-year-old girls saying, oh, please bring that back. No car insurance. No more clothes that I don't like that I have to buy. No more losers showing up at my door. If it hasn't happened, it will. Looking at some of you dads, it's coming. Oh, brother, it's coming. Man. I'm just thinking of my daughter right now of her life. I'm just, a, it is just like my life is flashing before me and all those memories, they were engaged. And you couldn't separate that engagement legally unless there was a divorce, so that's important. In fact, in Matthew's account, you know, we're told that Matthew was gonna put her away privately when he found out that she thought she might be uh, having cheated on him. I mean, that's what it was, it was that important was engagement. And we're told that she was the descendants of David, that Joseph was. We're given his name before Mary's. That means he was going to be the legal father of Jesus by adoption. Just like my daughter, I adopted her. I'm her legal father. He would be considered then of the tribe of David, but he was that way through Mary also. And then we're told her name was Mary. Okay. And so the angel comes in verse 28 and he says this, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now the word greeting and the word favored comes from the same basic Greek word. It means grace. It comes from the word Grace it was a common way in the Greek language of addressing someone, of saying, hey, he says, greetings, grace to you. And he says, you have found grace, grace, favored one, graced one, the grace of God, the thing that we don't deserve. Mary didn't deserve his grace. She didn't earn his grace. He gave that grace to her. He said, the Lord is is with you. The Lord is with you doesn't mean like today we will say someone is with you. Like, man, I'm with you. I'm on your side. You know, we use those colloquialisms. I got your back. I saw, I've seen the billboards. You know, God's got your back. I'm like, oh, don't do that. God is holy. He's not coming. God doesn't have our back. God has us, all of us, or he has none of us. He either has you or he doesn't have your back. He's not, he's not simply, the God with you doesn't mean God's on your side. I see that. I see sometimes, you know, God's on your side. I don't know that I would say that God's on my side. I'm either on God's side or I'm against God. That's how it works. God is with her. I mean, his presence was with her. I mean, she understood that because verse 29 says this about her. She was perplexed at this, confused. And kept wondering, pondering, what kind of salutation, what kind of greeting is this? I've been graced by with God. Now God is with me. And it's just going through her mind. The angel in verse 30 says to her, do not be afraid, Mary. That's what the angel always says at the Christmas story. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. To to Zechariah, to Joseph, to Mary, to whoever you appear to. For you have, get this, found favor with God. You found the grace of God. That's the word favor is grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You have found it. He has given it to you. I appreciate so much our Catholic friends because, like us as evangelical Christians, they so cling to the virgin birth, that doctrine, and they have such high regards for it. But sometimes they go a little bit over. And in the, if some of you came out of a Catholic background, and you know that, you know, the idea of Hail Mary full of grace, you know, that the, the Hail Mary, the, the rosary, Hail Mary is kind of even phrase now, you know, when your team's playing a football game, and at the end of the half, you know, they may try a desperation play, a pass in the end zone, it's called the Hail Mary. It came out, I believe, 1975, Dallas Cowboys, Roger Staubach, they're playing Minnesota in a playoff game, they're behind he throws a long pass. Yes, I got that. Got that threw Drew Pearson. He catches it, scores a touchdown. They asked Roger Staubach about it. He said, I just threw it up instead of Hail Mary. So Catholicism has crept into the life of the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> it's okay, because Roger is a saint, even to a Baptist. <laughs> she was not full of grace to begin with. She didn't possess it. God graced her. And he said this in verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Now, on the face of it, it sounds, okay, I'm engaged to Joseph. We're going to get married, and then we're going to have a kid. And every young girl wanted to give birth to the Messiah. I mean, if you were one Jewish girl back then, giving birth to the Messiah was it. Now, you know, you were going to have to be from the house of David, or your husband would have to be, but that's what you wanted to do. So, it just sounds like, okay, everything's going to go along pretty normal until you get to verse 32. And he will be great. Just like when John's birth was announced, he will be great in the eyes of God. God's going to use him for great things. He'll be called the son of the most high. Now, the phrase most high refers to God, only God. To be the son is a title. And it means that the son represents the character of the father. This was a way of saying son of God or that Jesus would be deity. Whenever you see a reference to Jesus, the title, Son of God, it is a reference to the fact that he is deity. It can mean nothing else in their understanding. How they would have understood it meant nothing but deity. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. The throne of the father, David, was a reference to being Messiah. That's what they believe. Not only is he going to be God, he's going to be the Messiah. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, or Israel forever. And his kingdom will never end. Now, this is a clear picture of Jesus, as the Messiah, as the king with his kingdom. At the coming of Christ, he established his kingdom. Now, I know there's some popular views of the second coming that says when Jesus comes again, he'll you know, establish his kingdom. I got news for you. It's already been established. I know that because the New Testament tells me that. I know that because Jesus says that in Mark 1, The kingdom of God is at hand. That's him. So don't let your theology, your doctrine, and your beliefs interfere with the understanding of Scripture. I have learned in my life, Scripture always trumps what I believe. If what I believe in the Bible and the New Testament don't coincide, I better change what I believe quickly and get right. The kingdom is here. And Mary said in verse 34, how can this be? I'm a virgin. I don't get this. Now, some people think that, you know, this may be a a vow of virginity forever. It doesn't mean that at all. She's just saying, she understands that what he's talking about is happening now. A, how can it happen now? I'm a virgin and B, I have no idea how I can have the son of the most high. None of that makes sense to her, nor should it. It's kind of hard to explain. And so you have then in verse 35, the process. And this is where the process of the miracle of the virgin conception to birth is answered. The angel said, the Holy Spirit, by the way, this is a Trinitarian passage. You have the Father, the Most High, the Son, and the Spirit. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you're not, this, this is, you're not going to believe this, okay? So, you know, just understand that. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So, in mythology, oftentimes the gods, you know, and, and the gods were just, you know, versions of humans with the worst possible traits magnified many times over in their absolute lust and perversion, oftentimes would assault and attack a woman and have a child. This is not what that's picturing. This is not even close to paganism. The word overshadow means there'll simply be a presence. It's not sexual. It's not physical. It is a presence. There'll be a real conception, a real scene, but it says it will be overshadowing you. This is the reason the holy child, the child that is holy and is separated, shall be called the Son of God. Why is it going to be called deity? We got the humanity part. You're the human part. You got that. Why deity? Because the Father is the Holy Spirit. And here you have Process. Verse 36, just to make it clearer. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth also conceived a son in her old age. She's past it. That was a miracle, by the way, but not like this. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Get this, for nothing, it will be impossible with God. Some people don't believe in the virgin birth because it's a miracle. You can't have miracles. It's impossible. Well, yeah, it's impossible for you and I. I mean, obviously, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, he wasn't buying anything, you know, until an angel appeared. But with God, nothing's impossible. And Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Sometimes it's bad because we don't want to be too much like the Catholics, you know. We don't want to give too much credit to Mary. But she was an obedient, virtuous young woman. I will do what the Lord has called me to do. God had a plan. I want you to understand how important this is. The virgin birth of Jesus guarantees the nature of Jesus. He is fully God, fully man. How do I know that? How do I have that guarantee? The virgin birth gives me that guarantee. God telling me the process gives me that guarantee. I can absolutely know for certain if I either believe God or I don't, but I can know for certain because of the virgin birth. Secondly, the virgin birth of Jesus gives the basis and foundation for the incarnation of Jesus. And the incarnation is essential for our salvation. The incarnation, God in the flesh, he goes to the cross and dies in my place and on my behalf and is raised back to life. The nature of that person on the cross is critical. And the virgin birth guarantees that I can understand that the incarnate one, the one in the flesh is that one. So it matters. And it matters because it's part of God's plan. Second thing I want to talk to you about today is not just the plan of God, but why the virgin birth matters. Because that's really what is important. When you deal with, with, with the incarnation, it's not enough that said that that you know God was being human. He wasn't simply being human. You have to understand that he became human. He became something he wasn't. God became something, he never was. He became Flesh. So the process becomes important, because when you come to Christ and you come to all this, you want to know that that person who walked. If all you have in your mind is, well, he was, you know, he was he, the, the virgin birth didn't have to happen. Just going to have to believe that that dude, that guy, that person was God. Well, how? That's what the, that's what pagans said. Their gods would take the forms of humans. If you don't have the virgin conception, you become very close. To paganism and mythology. If on the other hand you say, we well, you know well, the father was really Joseph, but Joseph and Mary, you know, the conceived, and somewhere along the way, God transformed whatever was there. Well, then what you really have is no guarantee that Jesus was fully God. There's no guarantee, you don't know for sure. That the incarnation, the virgin birth, a no for certain. So when someone says, well. You don't have to believe in the virgin birth. God could have done it some other way. I mean, that's doctrinally, theologically kind of suspicious. Why is that important to you? Is it possible that the reason that's important is because you don't want to admit the supernatural, the miraculous? And if you deny the miracle of the virgin birth, well, won't you deny the miracle of the resurrection then? The two go hand in hand. Besides Luke, I mean, Luke was... The guy who wrote this was the least likely of the four gospel writers to write this. He was a medical doctor, Colossians 4. My beloved, my friend, the beloved physician, Luke Paul calls him. I mean, listen, doctors don't buy virgin births, right? Any of you, don't throw your hand, but Some of you are medical people. Someone comes up to you and says, I'm pregnant, it's a miracle, I'm a virgin, you're not buying, you know, it's impossible. The only way Luke, because Luke did such a thorough job examining all the evidence, he wouldn't write this if it weren't absolutely true. And we know that Luke's a credible witness of the life of Jesus, because Sir William Ramsey, late in the 19th, early in the 20th century, when people were skeptical about some of the things that Luke wrote, did so much archaeological work that he said the overwhelming evidence is that Luke absolutely was one of the greatest historians of the first century. And today, outside of liberal Christianity, even in the academic world per se, Luke is regarded as a great source of first century material. I mean, we got to have confidence in this being true. With that in mind, We need to understand that the early church accepted that. Irenaeus writes about it early in the second century. The early confessions all confessed it. This is a fundamental teaching from the very beginning of the Christian faith. Now, why is that significant? Let me give you four things to why it's significant. First, because God is holy. He only does that which is consistent with his holiness. We have a holy God. To be holy means to be cut, separated to himself, morally perfect. He only does things that are consistent with his holiness, especially when you look at the big picture stuff. So when people say, well, God could have done it some other way, what you're basically saying is that God, holy God, didn't pick the holiest way to do it. He didn't pick the best way. There's something wrong with that. Now, it's one thing to say, you know, God or Jesus could have done something, you know, in a normal basis. For instance, Jesus healed people. I guess that's not normal, but it was normal for him. He, he, sometimes he touched people. Sometimes he took spit, put it on the ground, touched their eyes. That's not how I'd want it done, but I take it. Sometimes he just spoke. Sometimes they touched him. You can say, well, Jesus could have healed that person some other way. Well, yeah, because he did. You could even argue to some degree that God didn't have to pick Mary. Well, of course God didn't have to pick Mary. It was an act of grace. If it was an act of grace, he didn't have to pick her. But when you come to the process to say God could have done it some other way. No, no, no. God had to do it consistent with his holiness. Now, understand though, that belief in the virgin birth is not required in order to become a follower of Jesus. You don't have to believe in the virgin birth to become a Christian. We don't teach or preach that. When I share Jesus with someone, rarely do I talk about the virgin birth. Paul said, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised you from the dead, you're safe. He didn't say believe in your heart in the virgin birth. So you don't have to believe in order to become a Christian, but once you believe You are a Christian, you probably should believe it. In fact, I would say this. While it is not impossible to be a follower of Jesus and still deny the virgin birth, it's improbable. If someone comes up to me and says, you know, I'm a Christian, I just don't believe in the virgin birth, I doubt it. I'm not going to really believe you're a Christian. Because the only possible reason you would not believe in the virgin birth is because you can't accept the miraculous and the supernatural. If you can't accept it at the virgin birth, you can't accept it at the resurrection and you've got a real problem. Just don't buy it. I've never met someone who falls in that category. If you come up and say, well, I fall in that category, you understand what I'm fixing to say to you, right? Hello, my pagan friend. You're welcome to come here and give money, but I don't think you're a follower of Jesus. Fourth thing is this, the resurrection of Jesus gives credibility to the virgin birth because there's so much information about the resurrection of Christ. And think about it. Every year I preach about the resurrection at length several times. And one of the things I talk about is the factual basis. I go into that great detail, the factual basis of the resurrection. Because the evidence for the resurrection, which is miraculous, is so overwhelming. It gives credibility to the story of the virgin birth. And is significant. Now, with that in mind, I want to share with you quickly why it matters to you and us today. First of all, it says something about God. The virgin birth says something about God. Here we are living in rebellion against God. Mankind was in absolute rebellion against God. And man did not deserve it, but in the absolute grace of God and only by his grace and because he loved us with all intentionality and purpose, God sent Jesus into this world to die on a cross for our sins, to be raised back to life. And to guarantee that he sent him via the incarnation. It says an awful lot about God. One of the things it says about God is this, that God really wants a relationship, us to have a relationship with him. God really wants us in a relationship with him. I mean, God doesn't need us. We need him, but we've rebelled against him, and yet God still sent Jesus. It's amazing to think about that at Christmas. This is a pure act of love and grace because God doesn't need us. He wants us, and he loves us. And you and I, couldn't fix the mess we're in, God can. And he did it the hard way, the only way. So with that in mind, the virgin birth gives us the confidence and assurance that Jesus can really save us. How do I know that Jesus can save you? Well, the virgin birth says he is God in the flesh. When you deny the virgin birth and you deny that guarantee, how do you ever have confidence that that Jesus really did die for your sins? And could take him upon himself. But because I know he's the God man, I know that when he died on the cross, he died and took my sins. And he made him his own. And I have confidence in that. God had a plan from the very beginning. That plan was Jesus. As I said from the beginning, the virgin birth or conception of Jesus Christ is essential to his story. And his story is essential to my story. Because I can't come to faith without Christ. I need His story in my life. I want you to believe in the virgin birth and know it's true. I really do. But I also want you to put your faith and believe in Jesus. I want you to put your faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life who died for you and came back to life. And you can do that because of who He is, because He is God in the flesh. And I want you to have faith in him and to trust him. And I want you this Christmas to praise God, not just for the birth of Jesus. And we do that, we're so happy about the birth of Christ and we celebrate. I want you to praise him because of the incarnation, because God became something he never was. All births are special. But this is different this is the purest of all miracles. It is God becoming flesh. And you should praise him and thank him for it every day. We're going to have a time of invitation, a time where you can respond. If you want to give your life to Christ, you can do it. I'll be here. One of the other guys will be here. I think one of our gals will be up here for you ladies. If you'd rather be with another woman to talk to her, if you want to pray with us, pray for someone, pray for you, pray for your loved ones. Pray that they come to Christ. You want to praise God for the way he's working in your life. If you want to join the church, you can. Whatever you want to do. And you don't have to come forward to respond. You can respond right where you are. But here's what I want to be sure that you do today. I want you to leave this place today with the absolute confidence that Jesus is fully God, fully man, and he came for you. Lord, we praise you. For the incarnation of Christ, where God became something he never was, he became flesh and dwelt among us, and we held the glory. And we thank you, Father, not only we know that Jesus is God in the flesh, you gave us the process, not all of it, but you gave us enough to give us the confidence to trust you, to give us the guarantee we can put our faith in Jesus. So let us do that. Let us celebrate Jesus and birth and let us celebrate what that provided for us a path to you that went straight through the cross and straight through the resurrection and we'll give you the praise and glory in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand? I'll be here.